Previously on Make Cool Shit. Some shit went down. What happened to Jason Williams? No comment. True comment, true go. Batteries and chargers were savagely run over by a car. We can't afford this. Damn, Jay, it's gonna cost them a couple thousand dollars. They make it to the final shoot day. Rolling! First time I felt out of control. They need a song. Think of it like a demonic American act. Pulls his pants down, here it is. Bang! Walking away from this production, flat broke. Hosted by Aaron Hiefitz. This is Make Cool Shit. Okay, so the movie is all shot. Now all that's left is the edit, which, you know, is just the hardest part. They say when you make a movie, you actually make three movies. The movie you write, the movie you shoot, and the movie you edit. Guess which one of those matters most? I'll give you a hint. It's the one audiences actually see. I was $26,000 in the hole on this movie, having cashed out my 401k. Josh is leaving this shoot broke. Actually worse than broke. This is something that I didn't really take into consideration it being my first feature. I'd heard of like whisperings of, you know, oh man, when, you know, we got into post, we didn't have any money to finish it. We only had the money to get the thing in the can. I was like, that's ridiculous. And so the reality is, yeah, we didn't have money for a post producer. We didn't have money for a post coordinator for someone to come in and organize all the takes, get it to the editor, make sure that, you know, the whole process, soup to nuts, was taken care of. We just couldn't afford it. And if they can't edit the movie, then what was the point of doing any of it? So what do you do? If a film was fully financed to begin with, we would have an assistant editor on syncing and organizing footage as we're filming. How we approached this project, we basically were like, let's get the funds together for production. Then we will cut together like a sizzle or use that to raise the, the remaining funds. So it's really about the edit. According to the handbook, the more you have that's concrete, the easier it is for potential investors to understand and believe in what you're doing. Trailer making is a unique skill. It often involves throwing together shots totally out of context, which can be hard for the filmmakers who made the film to do. Many producers hire a trailer house or editors who specialize. Making a slick theatrical trailer gives investors a sense of how a film will be marketed, and sometimes you can obtain serious fundraising but they don't have the money to hire a trailer editor. What they do have is Brendan Banks, and hopefully he's got the editing chops to put together a trailer that will make the investors double down. Brendan, angel that he is, like stepped it up in ways that no cinematographer ever, ever would or should be expected to. We cut a teaser together with music from Killing of a Sacred Deer. And we showed it to our investors. We showed it to the guys at Last Rodeo Studios. We were like, you guys invested in something that is going to work. This movie's gonna fucking work. This teaser is rad. Can you please give us that credit card, daddy? Well, we just helped bridge a gap at the end uh, to, to finish up what a lot of folks have been working on for a long time. That's Steve Stodgehill of Last Rodeo Studios. And it was really actually satisfying to do that, to be able to make this project happen and to like let Josh actually execute his vision to the proper extent that he needed to. And that's one of his partners, Eamon Downey. And it convinced them to green light us another, God, like $70,000, I wanna say. They basically gave us the money to put this thing over the edge. So now Josh's baby, everything he's worked for is gonna be put in the hands of whoever they decide is gonna be the editor. It's a big decision. There were a lot of editors that we had kind of reached out to that were unavailable. 
Patrick Lawrence, pretty much every everything he's ever done, every film he's ever done, every short he's ever edited has made it into the festival circuit. I think he's like a six or seven or eight times Sundance alum. So he's got the, you know, he's got the Midas touch. Patrick has been to Sundance eight times? Damn, that's nine times more than me. Here we go. 666 we're looking for. 666! Oh my god. <laughs> Sign of the devil. Patrick, so good to meet you. Hi. Donnie. Donnie? Mike. That's an auspicious number, 666. Yeah. Is this your studio or your house? It's my apartment. Whenever I'm not on a big job and I have a studio, like I just I work from here. Mike and Donnie are in Los Angeles, meeting up with editor Patrick Lawrence. Oh, I like the uh, Ouija board. Yeah, I've had, I've had this since like 1996, since I was like a cool 12 year old that like thought he was so edgy. For a little context, Patrick's home is filled with oddities. The second you walk in, there's this large framed picture of Rasputin on the wall and more Ghostbuster collectibles than you can imagine. Venkmans and Slimers everywhere, in the bathrooms, in the kitchen, Egon's on the bookshelves, a life-sized proton pack is at the ready. And of course, the occasional Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man here and there, in case you want a friendly yet terrifying villain. Spooky. Like, I wanted to be a director. What I learned about being in school is that everybody wanted to be a director. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, well, shit, like, how do I make myself stand out? And so I saw editing as an extension of the director. I might not be the one who's actually, like, getting the credit for it, but I'm having a little bit of the say in whatever the final product of the film is. According to the handbook, editing involves juggling many elements, including picture, production audio, music, along with visual and sound effects. The editor brings a fresh set of eyes, unbiased by what took place during production. I first met Josh a couple years ago on the set of a short film called Tond. Josh and his then directing partner uh, were the directors on that. Hello, neighbor. My name is Tond, and I live with my wife, Janice. Please come over to my house this weekend, neighbor. Please. I didn't know that he was making scare me until he posted like, hey, that's a wrap, like we're done, like we made this movie. Then all of a sudden I got reached out to by Irony Point. The first thing I saw was the sizzle. They made a sizzle after finishing the film. And I saw that it was like shadow play and Josh was making the sounds and the sounds were elevating and things. And it was like, oh wow, this is cool. This is something I've never done. My typical flow would be like, I would assemble the film go back and do another pass of an editor's cut and then present the editor's cut to the director as like, here's your film. This is what it looks like from my eyes. But I knew right away what scare me, it wasn't gonna be like that because there was a lot of improv moments. There was a lot of like 15, 16, 17 takes on things. So it was like, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to be picking the right stuff. He totally got when we sat down and I was like, I want to hold on takes. I want to do kind of like a tempered Yorgos Lanthimos kind of a vibe. I don't want this to be too cutty of a film. I'm not going to be over your shoulder. I'm not going to be like breathing down your neck. It's my worst nightmare to be considered like the annoying director. We're not paying you enough for that. And he really appreciated that. And it was, you know, it's kind of love at first sight into into his uh, dark Ghostbuster paraphernalia laden den we went to uh, to cut our movie. And it was it was awesome. He's amazing to work with. And while Patrick is in charge of the picture and how everything fits together, post-production on music and sound are a whole other department. Actually, 
departments. According to the handbook, the emotions felt on screen are often conveyed as much or more so by the sound design and music than by any dialogue or picture. For Scare Me, sound and music are even more important than in most other films. The plan from the very beginning was to lean on sound and music to create the tone that they didn't have the budget to do visually. The more committed they get to the scary stories, the more they hear the werewolf creaking up the stairs, something in the hallway, the gun that they're loading, silver bullets with and pointing it at it. Knife coming out of the sheath. Knife coming yeah, yeah. out of the sheath. So it is like, you know, it's the kind of thing where Quentin Tarantino gives first billing to a makeup artist. The first billing would go to a uh, sound designer on this movie. Here we are at Great City Post, a full-service audio post-production house for TV, film, and commercials, responsible for sonifying shows like Inside Amy Schumer, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, and the Transparent Music musical finale. It's also an arm of Irony Point, the production company behind Scare Me. I'm John Moros, and I did the sound design and supervised the sound editing of uh, Scare Me. I'm Ian Steins. I was the re-recording mixer. Yeah, we first, of course, we sit down to a spotting session with the director and basically go through and, and talk about each scene in detail. But I talked to Josh, and I was like, I would like to start building scenes with you in the room just going through sound libraries so he sat with me while i was building some of the scenes so i would get his like reaction kind of in real time it's great that you did that because if you don't sit down with someone you're kind of taking a stab in the dark really got a sense of what he wanted yeah yeah well every project is different i mean this one john edited most of it so i had the luxury of coming into its awesome soundscape and just tweaking it even farther a sound designer does a lot of the work in making a movie seem realistic of actually putting you in that place. A sound mixer enhances those sounds and finds a contextual balance. All the little noises that you don't think about when you're watching a movie, someone putting down a glass, somebody opening a door, all of that. If they weren't there, it would feel eerie and weird and fake. The thing that really got me to see it for what it is, is like I watched the commentary for the movie Seven, the adventure oh. film, and you can actually watch the M&E for the movie just the music and effects without the dialogue. And then it has the commentary from Ren Kleiss, the sound designer. I saw like how you can actually build a world mm. with the sound, like all the rain and the car buys and like the, the subjective noises of like hearing a dog bark at a certain time or like a, a person yelling in the street at a certain moment in the scene that like gives a, the audience a feeling that they're unaware of. And I was like, oh, that is super cool. I want to do that. Here's a good example. Uh, he starts telling a story and it slowly builds up. Yeah, so like, like what he's like doing the werewolf voice, it's like it starts off with being him naturally, then like at the last moment of his natural growl it turns into the processed wolf's noises. He starts lumbering up the stairs like... <laughs> Show me that lumber. Breathe like a werewolf. Breathe. They couldn't actually make the main character, Fred, into a werewolf, but by using shadow and sound, they're trying to make his werewolf story seep into the base reality of the cabin. Now she's in it. Holy fuck, that's fucking scary. See? I can be scary. And as we mentioned last time, music is a huge deal. So for the original score, Josh is going back to the composers of that original demonic disco song he loved so much, Chris and Phil, Elegant 2. I'm working with Chris Maxwell, our composer, tomorrow to do spotting, and a big conversation we're going to have, or I'm going to have with him, is all the temp music I've pulled in is from movies like Poltergeist, to give it that kind of nostalgic feeling. Once picture is locked, the composer will sit with the director, grab a notepad, and begin a spotting session. 
According to the handbook, this process includes examining every scene to determine whether a certain feeling or quality of sound is desired. In this case, Josh and Chris are making original music. I'm hooked. That's like Ghostbusters, man. I yeah. love that. So the entry point and the out point is in this is right. Chris loves movies. And the power even small sounds can have is not lost on him. Just listen to the way he talks about the soundtrack from Jaws. There was like an ocean you're staring at and it's absolutely not scary at all. And then suddenly there's like, and it's like, yeah. This is really fucking scary, <laughs> yeah. that one yeah. sound. We have a little bit of a chapter change tonally with each kind of story, but right now nothing's coming from one place. I'm pulling a little bit from Jerry Goldsmith. I'm pulling a little bit mm. from Bernard Herrmann. Patrick threw in this kind of Danny Elfman violin, mm. an almost like Slavic gypsy sort of mm. string, playfully scary kind of sound or whatever. Mm. If you guys take into consideration that we just saw Werewolf and it's big and it's in and out and it's sloppy, she has the floor in a whole different way. During the edit, temporary music is often used as a placeholder so that the director and editor watching it back can still get a sense of the tone and pacing. Now it's up to Chris and Phil to not only capture the spirit of those temporary tracks, but to outperform them. Temp tracks for this film are John Williams, Danny Elfman, and Jerry Goldsmith. They are the undisputed masters of this industry for the last 40 or 50 years. Chris and Phil are wonderful composers, but they didn't score Jaws, Batman, and Chinatown. They aren't composing for a live orchestra. They're limited to sample libraries and digital composing tools. Plus, there's something called demo love where there's so much love for the temp track that production just can't unlove it. And now anything you hand them, no matter how good it is, you know, it's just not going to be the same. They've got their work cut out for them. Forgive my misusing of any terms, but you could end it on, like, on an up glide, like on an up note. Right. Yeah. Wow! So it sort of it really, him. really goes right up to the moment. Even though Josh doesn't speak in the same musical terms as Chris and Phil, they all understand storytelling. They're speaking in the language not of music, but of creating moments. The best idea translates. The soundtrack follows his lack of momentum. Right. So, how do you construct that moment? Here they're working on one where Josh's character is telling a scary story. The music, it's got to do all the work of a horror score, but then turn on a dime for comedic effect. We already established a little bit of a sound palette with the string stuff. As he's telling the story, the tension builds, and it builds, and it builds, until his story falls totally flat, because the character's kind of a doof. The world's like... Did the werewolf hit his knee or was that just you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. When we come back from break, the rubber actually meets the road. Josh watches his movie for the first time. And then other people watch his movie and they judge it. Do you have trouble falling asleep and staying asleep? Bloom Farm's Dream CBN is a game changer. Just two drops under my tongue at bedtime and I fall asleep effortlessly and stay asleep. 
Wake up refreshed and ready to tackle the day clear-headed and wide-eyed with Dream CBN. Order today and get 15% off standard products with code MAKECOOL at bloomfarmswellness.com. That's bloomfarmswellness.com. Offer code MAKECOOL. Listeners to Make Cool Shit get $100 off Slated's script and financial analysis bundle. Slated is the world's leading film packaging, financing, and distribution marketplace. Their proprietary script and financial analytics have been used by the companies that make real deal movies like Super Troopers 2, The Peanut Butter Falcon, and Joker. Get $100 off the Slated script and financial analysis package, which gets you detailed notes, financial projection models, and a score that can instantly match you with tens of thousands of experienced investors, producers, distributors, crew, and talent on the Slated platform. Also, I'm on Slated. Use the code MCS100OFF. That's MCS100OFF. The movie is now edited, and Josh is about to see his little baby idea that he wrote in three days in a coffee shop, stitched all together by Patrick for the very first time. I was so nervous about watching the edit for the first time, but I remember watching all two hours and 15 minutes of it and 10 minutes of it, and I was like, everything is perfect. We can't cut a damn thing. This is genius. And Patrick, haven't done, you know, this was like his sixth feature or whatever. He was like, yeah, no, you're going to end up cutting at least a half an hour out of this. And I was resistant to that. You work with it, and you work with it, and you work with it, and then you take some time away from it, and you go back, and you realize this is too long, this is too short, this doesn't make me feel anything, and you get fucking desensitized to it. It was a fascinating process. Movies really are like a living, breathing thing. It's an organism. I started working on it in April, and we finished it the first week of July, so like in less than three months, really. And so we started showing it to people and getting feedback, and that's like some of the feedback screens we got were very positive, more positive than most films I had done. Tricky thing about the test screening process, I went into it thinking like, oh shit, this thing's incredible. And then showing a group and then the group sort of having, just being quiet for moments that were, that I perceived to be laughs or, you know, Mm -hmm. laughing in moments that I didn't think were funny or some of the more extreme notes, like lose the first scene and jump into such and such, you know, paying attention to my psychological responses to some of that stuff and just how the quote unquote masses responded to it was, was really intense. According to the handbook, It's imperative that you view the movie on a big screen during the edit process. Screenings can be invaluable to determine whether something is confusing, boring, or really just doesn't work. I don't know how true that really is now. You know, because everybody's watching stuff at home or or on their on their phones. You know, the kids these days, they love watching stuff on their their teeny little little phones. So when you make a movie, there's a good chance that it'll be viewed at best on somebody's couch and more likely, you know, some kid who thinks everything is better on their teeny tiny little phone. But it's not better. When you watch something on a larger screen, it is larger. I I didn't do physics, but I'm pretty sure that that's true. Are there any uh, comments that you want to read? I mean, I can pick some random. Yeah, that'd be fun. Some of them are New York and some of them are L.A. So I prompt with questions. What's the message? Is it too preachy? Someone wrote, male toxicity is toxic? Question mark. It wasn't subtle or nuanced. Uh, (laughs) What's your favorite story? Why? Grandpa. 
The story is hacky based on bad movies. So maybe this person didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Josh wisely is trying not to get his ego involved and just take it all as useful feedback, even if it's not necessarily what you want to hear. What's the scariest moment, if anything? Definitely when Fred starts threatening Fanny. Pretty much the the through-line feedback we got was that the ending was when it turns into a horror film, and Alex was the one who actually said something really profound, which is a lot of men who've watched the movie think of it as like a funny, kind of spooky movie, and a lot of women find it to be more, more so a horror comedy. Men and women are having very different reactions to it. Some call it horror comedy, other people call it comedy horror. It's not necessarily a bad thing as long as the people who really like comedy think it's a comedy and the people who really like horror think it's primarily horror. Not so great if it's the other way around. I think the biggest trick in the edit was Venus. You know, Venus was like nine or ten pages. And, you know, once once we sat down and looked at it in the edit, it just did not work. It was just way too fucking long. You know, we showed it to like test audiences, like friends and stuff. In the longer version, people would just kind of, their butts would kind of move around in their seats, and that's always a bad sign. Something you discover in screenings is that some stuff you thought was going to work doesn't. There's this big story right at the climax of the film that now that he sees it on the big screen, Josh realizes is boring. There are many things that an audience can forgive. Boring is not one of them. And that's what's referred to in the industry as a huge fucking problem. I think it was a new Valia who's a director buddy of mine. She was like, why don't you make Venus basically a drug sequence? And that's basically what we did. And Patrick and I just fucking pained over that sequence to make it work. So we cut 14 pages or 10 pages down to like a minute and a half. I think it was the only time we got, you know, closest to butting heads. I'm listening to him. I'm trying to get his sensibilities out there and make sure that it fits with his aesthetic while also bringing in what I know. Our producer saw the cut for the first time, Alex. We get the first cut from Josh. And she called me and she was like, my initial reaction, uh, very strong. I thought, you know, this was going to be good. I mean, I did. I did trust you. And I, I, I did, you know, believe in this project. And I like the script. But when I watched the movie. Wow. This is, you know, this is very good. Holy shit. Okay. Holy shit. The doubts were kind of out the window on everybody's end, especially mine, when we all saw that this thing we sought out to do, that we set out to do, that it was working. It was fucking working. There's this great Michael Pollan quote in The Omnivore's Dilemma, where he tastes some organic chicken, or beyond organic. This chicken has lived a perfect, happy little chicken life in the great chicken outdoors doing, you know, chicken yoga or whatever. He essentially says, that chicken tastes chickenier. It's more itself. A lot of great things are like that. The things that stick with you and say something and are really distinct from everything else. And it sounds like Josh has made really chickeny chicken. Next time on Make Cool Shit, they submit Scare Me to festivals and to distributors. Not just like their friends and family and like, hey, great job, don't you like me and the stuff I make, but strangers, strangers who have money, strangers who will either put this film in a festival or not, strangers who will either purchase this film to put it in theaters or not. Strangers who will determine whether Josh gets to do this again 
or not. <laughs>